0: Just a moment. Just a moment. Welcome to the Future Law Podcast. Exploring where the law has been. Hey Siri, take a selfie. And where it's going.
1: Oh, good afternoon. From the brilliant. My name is Sophia, and I am the latest and greatest robot.
0: To the scary.
1: Just what do you think you're
0: doing, Dave? And everything in between.
2: Please welcome your very real and very human host, Dan Hunter. Hi, you're with the Future Law Podcast. I'm Dan Hunter, and I'm here with Mike Madison. Hi Mike. hi there. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much. And today we are really fortunate to have as our guest, Professor Deborah Merritt from the Moritz College of Law at Ohio State University. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. So, Deborah, we've been talking with lots of uh, US professors and deans about the state of US legal education. Uh, You have some interesting views about this, uh, we know. So, uh, just to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about your view? of uh, legal education in the States, the changes that have happened over the last five to 10 years and how you think about these changes, how you'd characterize them?
1: Within legal education itself, I think there have been three major changes during the last five years. And I think they're well known to everybody here in, in the United States. The first is that applications to law school have plunged their way down from what they once were. The second is that student demand for scholarships or discounts has gone way up so that the net tuition that's actually collected from students is way down at most law schools. And as a result, really just a combination of those first two forces, a lot of schools are really struggling to meet budgets. We've had a few schools that have had to close or merge with other schools. Stories about quite a number of schools that are relying upon central administration for significant subsidies, and in general, an ongoing worry about where schools are going to go with their budgets.
2: So what does that what does that mean, do you think? Uh, I'm, I'm interested particularly in some uh, thoughts you had uh, in a symposium that uh, you, Mike, and I were in uh, last year uh, around this, the sorts of problems that those uh, changes generate for schools.
1: Well, a number of problems. The first is that Schools really have to understand that the situation is not going to change. I hear rumors that people think that applications are now on their way up again. They have risen incrementally in the last two years, and that's not really a change. These shifts away from law school by applicants are long term, is a long term trend rather than a short term crisis. And I could point to several factors that make that clear to me. One is that the number of entry level jobs that require a JD is continuing to decline. Uh, The absolute number of those Mm -hmm. jobs gotten by our graduates goes down each year and potential applicants understand that. Behind that trend, we have larger trends in higher education. The number of people going to college is starting to decline and will decline over the next few years, decade or so. Perhaps more important for law schools because we always recruit from the top of the college graduate class is that The number of students majoring in liberal arts subjects is going down dramatically. Students are migrating to business and science technology subjects, while law schools draw most of their applicants from the liberal arts, English, political science, and so forth subjects. That trend is also part of a larger trend, which is that there are other careers that are now much more attractive to students, high school students and college students than law. It surprises many lawyers because we think of ourselves as averse to numbers. But one of the careers that's now very attractive to people who a generation ago would have been law students is software programming, software design. Uh, It's a career that one can do with a college degree. It's intellectually stimulating. It helps people. It involves planning and logic and strategy. I have a niece who in a previous generation probably would have been a law student and a lawyer by now, but she is very happily engaged with a college degree moving up in management in a software design firm. So I think schools need to understand that this isn't going to change and that we have to make plans based on the reduced number of applicants who will be coming through our doors. We also have to realize that the current number of applicants is heavily driven by the large scholarships that we're giving. Some schools still think of this as a way to bridge a gap, but this is really the future people are not willing to pay full price tuition, except at the very top law schools. And so schools have got to factor into their budgets, the real tuition that they're collecting rather than the uh, theoretical list price. If we don't, um, if applications don't go up and and the willingness to pay full tuition doesn't go up, then schools have to figure out how they'll support their current faculty and, and programs. I think we're living now through the after effects of the bubble that we built. During the first years of this century, schools increased tuition dramatically. The biggest increases were at public schools, but public schools also make up a very large segment of the law school market. Well, along with those tuition increases, came much higher um, salaries for faculty, more support for research, programs for students, a lot more administrators. And now we're faced with a situation in which we're no longer getting the amount of money that we once had to support those programs. It's pretty hard to fire people, especially when they have tenure, and it's difficult to downsize, uh, to reduce salaries, to reduce programs that people like. So schools have to figure out what they're going to do to survive. Are they going to find new revenue streams that will support what we built, or are they just going to quietly downsize? This is is the situation that we're in.
0: Debbie, there's a... You know, listening to your review, which I completely agree with as a factual matter, it adds up to a portrait that's relatively grim. And I'm wondering if you see any reasons for optimism or opportunity in all of this.
1: I see reasons for opportunity if schools are willing to make some fairly dramatic changes. Some of these trends are coming from the fact that well, let me back up for a minute there and say, in addition to, to these particular changes that we're seeing in law schools that relate to the number of applicants who will come and how much they'll be willing to pay, there are other large trends going on in the legal profession, some of which are related to our particular market, but others are operating independently. Those trends are, first of all, a huge increase in the number of non-lawyers who are doing legal work. It's no secret that corporations now use literally armies of college graduates to do compliance work, contract management, human resources, and other work that involves using legal principles and applying them to the facts of a case, which is what we think of as core legal work. Law schools like to think of that work as JD Advantage work, but it's really not. Those jobs are filled predominantly by college graduates, and they're done very well by college graduates. So that's one area for law schools to think about. Um, Why aren't law schools doing more of that training? Why aren't we, in other words, getting into the undergraduate curriculum and combining a major in law that would prepare people for that type of work with a liberal arts education? We used to think about law as a graduate degree in the liberal arts, and there are a lot of ways in which that was true. So why not take that liberal arts approach and transport it to the undergraduate curriculum where... People are demanding something that's both liberal arts plus has some job outcomes. It seems to me that we have a perfect solution to that demand from the college level. Then we could look at a second trend or problem or opportunity, which is the huge crisis in access to legal services that we're suffering. People are, pro, pro, say, litigants are swamping the courts in family court in particular, but in landlord-tenant courts and other courts as well. They simply cannot afford the services of JD-trained lawyers. So that leads to the question, well, if college graduates are able to administer complex regulatory schemes for corporations, why can't those same college graduates do simple divorces for individuals? Or if a college graduate works in HR at a corporation and works through all of these employment discrimination laws in order to decide the corporation's position in firing an employee, why can't that employee word lie upon a college graduate to negotiate with the corporation and advocate for the employee's position? I think that the bar obviously is going to resist this mightily, but I think that a trend is underway that will lead to deregulation or maybe call it re-regulation, a different type of regulation of the legal profession, where we will somehow become more tolerant of non-lawyers doing more legal business. So that would be another opportunity for law schools who want to educate and also improve access to justice. And then finally, the third trend that's going on in the profession is the tremendous advances that are being made by artificial intelligence that, in my view, are remarkably improving the delivery of legal services. I don't see computers as being opposed to humans. I see us as working together. And that is affecting the number of people who will take positions as lawyers. It has that effect. But it also provides opportunities for schools to educate students to work better in a workplace that includes artificial intelligence. And by that, I don't mean teaching students how to do coding. I think that there's some place for that. And I think that students also need to be exposed in law school to artificial intelligence, or even if it's not AI, just computerized types of applications. For example, in our clinics, we now use case management systems that are the same as what are used in many law firms. But we also need to focus on training students for the things that people need to do in this age of computer people partnerships. So people are still better at talking to other people, at gathering information from people, interviewing them, counseling them, reassuring them, trying to figure out what a client's real concerns are. Computers can do some of that in a diagnostic way, but I think that the human side of that is going to become increasingly important. And that's not an angle that law schools excel in. So that's, there's a range of opportunities for law schools in this new world that includes increased services by non-lawyers, possible um, improvements for access to justice, and the ways in which we're going to partner with artificial intelligence
2: can i pick up on on a couple of those thoughts i look i agree with with each of them i think they're they're really great observations um on the the observation around uh using non lawyers for a range of of legal services that uh have typically been done by by lawyers traditionally been done by lawyers do you think that the state bars and the other regulators and accrediting agencies will eventually drink the Kool-Aid and and actually Uh, allow non-lawyers to do those sorts of things. They're they're typically pretty slow moving and pretty um, trade restrictive. And uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of enthusiasm for that in in my travels. I'm wondering if you can see sort of examples of that on the horizon where maybe the tectonic plates are shifting a little bit for them.
1: I think it will be slow. I think that regulators are actually going to move faster than law schools, which may be a very low compliment or low bar, but (laughs) they are, the regulators, um, are closely partnered with the judges and the judges are the ones who are overwhelmed. The judges are the ones who have to suffer with all of the pro se litigants. And I think that that is a significant force. The other force that I think will move this ahead is a concept called entity regulation Entity regulation means that you could form an organization in which lawyers are employees and their their profits are being, you could even think of a Walmart, right? So Walmart would be the biggest example of this, but it could also be a nonprofit organization. Let's call it good lawyering for all. And these are, whether it's a nonprofit or it's Walmart, they're organized by people who are not necessarily lawyers, but are good business people, good entrepreneurs, innovators they hire lawyers and also hire some non-lawyers to do work uh, in providing particular types of legal services. In return for being able to do this, which can only be made possible in the US by changing one of our professional responsibility rules that forbids profit sharing between lawyers and non-lawyers, in return for doing this, these entities would be subject to regulation by state bars. So they would also have certain types of ethics rules that they would have to, to follow. And I think, I think that's probably where the push will initially come. There's a conference that's being held. It's an invitational conference, I think, in April by the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, IELTS, at Denver University. And they are organizing a conference in which they are inviting um, justices from several states and some other folks to talk about entity regulation. So that, I think, would be the leading edge of this reform, because it involves not developing a different licensing scheme for individuals or opening the doors to all kinds of unregulated practice, it says, we're going to allow institutions to create the same opportunities for individuals that currently exist for corporations. In other words, if you're part of an entity and that entity is subject to regulation, then an individual can get legal services that will be provided in a more entrepreneurial way. Some of those services might be provided by non-lawyers, intake, for example. Um, counseling, a range of different services
2: we already see that that sort of model a little bit in um, managed legal services you know, legal ops as as they're sometimes called companies like axiom United Lex Integrion, and others are, are huge and and they do this sort of service but for um, general counsels office for for legal departments of of um, of big uh, big companies so it's not like we we haven't got a model for this
1: that's right and again it comes down to the question of if if those companies can provide effective ethical service to corporations, why can't individuals have the same benefit? Why do I have to buy my divorce if I need one from a lawyer rather than from a company that can provide me that service at lower cost using lawyers and also using some non-lawyers?
0: Debbie, this all sounds... Sort of eminently straightforward. So, so where are the pressure <laughs> points in the system? You mentioned you mentioned law professors in law schools, and we've talked about the practicing bar and the American Bar Association. So, so where? So, just in terms of the, some of the nitty-gritty transitions that need to happen, where do you see the big points of resistance? And and maybe more optimistically, where do you think there are? opportunities for innovators or entrepreneurs within the system to to try to break out some some new models?
1: Well, when we think about law schools, I think we could divide them into three groups. There's one fairly small group of law schools that places a majority of their students with large law firms that pay very high salaries. Those law schools can afford to do what I would call marginal innovation or add-on innovation. They have huge amounts of financial resources, And so they can add all sorts of things to the curriculum, new programs. They can offer um, fellowships after graduation. So all kinds of innovation can happen there because they have the resources to do it. And they like, it's a kind of fun innovation. It raises your reputation to try something new. But those schools are not, I think, going to change the basic structure because the structure actually serves the corporations and the large law firms that their students go uh, to work for. So there's no real reason for them to change the structure. Then there's a group of law schools that place uh, some of their students at those big law firms, um, place the majority of their students probably at smaller law firms, but firms that are still serving businesses rather than individual clients, and then also place a significant proportion of their students in government positions. For those schools, I think innovation is actually very hard because they are... Their budgets are strained, but they're not crumbling, and they can survive. They can hold on. They're getting enough tuition from students. They have to give big discounts, but they're getting enough tuition from students to keep the current model. They don't have enough money to do marginal innovation, and they don't really want to change the deep structure because they all want to be like the most elite law schools. They're hoping that if they do exactly what Harvard, Yale, and Columbia, Stanford are doing, that... They will somehow become those schools and so the incentives there to innovate are rather limited and i think these schools also feel in a somewhat precarious position that after all they are holding on their budgets aren't broke and that if they do something innovative they might lose it all now some schools are bucking that trend i think The University of Arizona is probably in that mix of schools. It's a fairly large group of schools um, that I'm talking about in the second group. And they innovated with the undergraduate program that they've developed. And I think they're going to see payoff from that. But most schools in this group, I think, are are pretty scared of innovation. And then there's a group of law schools that really have to innovate or close down. Uh, And the question is going to be, which will they do? It's their, their budgets are strained enough that they either have to think about a very different model, maybe really embracing the idea of educating JDs to serve the low and middle income groups, which is something they haven't wanted to embrace. They've wanted to be more like the schools that get their graduates jobs in business oriented law firms, but they could embrace that they could develop incubators, which some of them have done they could decide to go into undergraduate education in this wholesale way. So far, I've seen innovation in those schools, and I think more innovation than one actually sees in in the first two groups that I've talked about. But we've also seen some schools that have have chosen to close down or to merge in order to support their budgets. I think law, law professors really like the prestige of, or the prestige they feel is in a JD program. So they're reluctant to think about undergraduate education, or thinking about other very different models.
2: Picking up on that uh, on that three-part division um, that you said that you see a little bit of innovation in the that that bottom rank, and and obviously some marginal or uh, a non-transformative innovation at the at the top levels. Uh, apart from University of Arizona, what are the innovations that you're you're seeing either in the the sort of the small-scale uh, marginal? increases or improvements or the um, the larger kind of systemic changes that, that are possible?
1: Well, a range of changes might be one that I've touched upon, which is really reaching out into the undergraduate curriculum and thinking about the fact that we could educate undergraduates mm-hmm. not to be lawyers as we see them, or lawyers as I know law is an undergraduate subject in many other countries, not following exactly that model, but thinking in the United States, what is it that A college-educated graduate with a law major, what types of work could that person do? And we know they could do compliance. We know they could do HR. We know they can do contract management. Could we also educate them to do work for individuals, to do employment relations work, for example, for the employee rather than for the employer? In order for that to happen, there's going to have to be some change on the regulatory side that will allow them through this entity regulation idea, perhaps, to perform that type of work. I think that that would be attractive to today's high school and college students. I think the people who want, they want to help other people. They want to feel that they're professionals. They want to solve problems, be strategic, but they don't want to go to law school for three years and pay all that money and then end up doing that work for corporations. So there's uh, a real opportunity there. Other types of innovations that could be undertaken at law schools themselves would be to focus more on the skills of interacting with clients. We don't we don't really talk about clients much in law schools except in clinics. And clients are really what make the system operate. So if we could begin really educating students from day 1 to interact with clients, to understand how to talk to clients, how to draw out a client's goals. The goals are never simple. I teach uh, two clinics. One is a criminal defense clinic. And the first goal every client has is to stay out of jail. But then when you probe further, because most of our clients aren't going to go to jail anyway, these are misdemeanor clients. They actually have a range of preferences. Some of them were just adamant that they're not going to plead to this particular charge because they find it insulting, but they would plead to a different charge. Some of them would be willing to do community service. Others can't do community service because they're single parents with four children and a full time job. So learning how to to talk to clients and to help them identify their goals, solving problems that involve various aspects of the law, as well as the personalities of the people involved, engaging in all of those client related skills, negotiating, um, working out a strategy for how to solve a problem. I think if we did that from the beginning, that would be really quite innovative. And I think it would also prepare people better for the types of opportunities they will have after law school. Debbie, it
0: sounds to me like you're talking about things that we should be doing as law uh, as as law schools, independent of the sort of economic and and market pressures that we started
1: with. Oh, absolutely. I'm really after all my years in legal education. At some point, about ten years ago, I feel like I opened my eyes a bit and looked around and thought, "This is just so strange that." We're not at all focused on clients in law schools because we're we're an exclusive profession. We have the state's permission to uh, operate this profession all on our own. Nobody else can practice law. And in return for that privilege, I think we have an obligation to provide services that are at least as good, but preferably better than what the open market would provide so there has to be some value that's provided by our exclusivity it can't just be uh something a right that we've you know somehow co- got uh, seized in previous years and are holding on to for our own betterment a protectionist type approach and if we're really going to deliver that type of improved value to clients we have to know more about clients and i sh- and law schools are a key part to the system we are the gatekeepers to this limited profession We lay the educational foundation, both knowledge and skills, that will really fuel lawyers' work throughout their careers. They obviously will learn more things on the job, but we lay the foundation in law school. And when we lay that foundation without any real connection with what it is that clients need or want, I think we're really failing the profession. We're failing in this contract that we've made with society that give us exclusive rights to run this justice system, and we'll do it well for you. I don't think we're doing nearly as good a job as we could.
2: You've outlined a really fascinating kind of vision of the future um, of a different sort of law school, a different sort of legal education, one that better meets the needs of, of society and, and the clients. Uh, to get to that point, law schools have to change really pretty dramatically. Um, and, and you've outlined some of these in, in, in other parts of your writings. Um, do you think that that's likely and and how does a, a law school faculty member or dean confronting the future uh that's that's about to to hit them uh how do they actually make those sorts of changes i'm thinking about your, your observation uh about how law professors like to teach the jd because it's it's high status and they would feel a it would be a, a status reduction if they had to teach something uh that wasn't within the jd and i'm thinking about the kinds of uh, cost structure within law schools where almost all of the the costs of the school are in the faculty members' salaries, which by most college professor standards is extremely high. Uh, I'm thinking about the, the sort of the sense that you uh, have as a, uh, as a scholarly, uh, doctrinal faculty member in the States of that you're special and those clinicians are, are not so special and they do a lot of teaching and you don't have to because you're advancing knowledge in, in sort of important ways by publishing in a you know, Law Journal and so forth, right? All, all of these structural elements, I think, make it incredibly hard to, to innovate within law schools. Do, do you share that view?
1: I, unfortunately, but absolutely do share that view. It is very hard to innovate. On the other hand, I stop sometimes and think that when I first entered the legal profession, there were very few women in this profession, and it seemed like it would be impossible for women to be accepted on the same terms as men. The same was true when I went to teach in a law school. I was only the third woman on the faculty there, and things seemed impossibly hard. Uh, We've seen so many other big changes. I didn't think that we would be living in a country now that embraced for the most part, and certainly in a constitutional sense, same-sex marriage. So hard things do happen, and sometimes it's hard to predict how they will happen. I think if I were a dean or a law faculty member who wanted to either advocate for change, as I do, or uh, help the school cope with inevitable change, as some other people might want to do, I think a a small step that I would take to begin would be to urge that the school engage in a series of of really quite serious and well-structured focus groups with practitioners, clients, and organizations that serve people who have difficulty finding legal services. So in other words, trying to get some handle also on would-be clients, the people who can't afford legal services. And really try to get a very good picture of what it is that lawyers actually do nowadays in the workplace. Because as we know, many faculty members don't have that information at all. And when we do, it's often decades old. What is it that lawyers do? What is it that clients need? What is it that employers want? And then try to take that information back to the faculty to really stimulate a, a heartfelt discussion about what will happen if we don't serve those needs, why we have to update ourselves, because some of it is also changing times. I mean, faculty, the legal writing programs in the country are now um, dealing with the challenge that they they know very well how to teach people how to write wonderful memos, but nobody writes paper memos anymore. So now are they going to discard that and start (laughs) teaching people how to write really effective emails? And I think the best writing professors are doing some of both. So some of it is also updating, but doing that kind of focus group, I'm actually just at the very beginning of a project with with the Institute for the Advancement of Legal Services. And underwritten in part by the Access Lex Institute, in which we're going to do more than 60 focus groups around the country, trying to identify exactly what it is that new lawyers do. These particular groups are not going to focus on the client side of it right now, but we're going to create a toolkit out of this. It's it's not hard to do this type of, of focus group work, but people sometimes like to have something to rely upon. And I think when that toolkit is ready, it would actually be easy for law schools to implement. It, uh, it's not expensive to do. Uh, alumni and nearby practitioners are usually happy to take part in focus groups. So some information, a data shock perhaps, might be useful in provoking thoughts about change in law schools.
0: Debbie, I have one uh, sort of provocative reaction to, to your really excellent summary. And that is, uh, when I've had anecdotal conversations with colleagues about these kinds of Issues that we don't know enough about how the world actually works, the the worlds where our our graduates are going off to be in, begin careers and hopefully to thrive, uh, and that if we knew more about those worlds, we would be doing different things in our in our teaching in our educational programs. And the anecdotal response is always, well, "I don't know how to do that." Right? So the barrier to change is literally that uh, the current faculty, the current teachers, uh, don't have the portfolio of skills that is really capable of coping with these new visions. So rather than trying to change the incumbents, the the, the longer term strategy is to replenish the pool of faculty with different sorts of teachers who are more open to change, who have different uh, experiences and attitudes and skills. And in fact, I, when I was listening to your description your own account of your own career coming in as uh, one of a small number of women on on a law faculty at the beginning of your career, there's a little bit of an indication that a a, a different background, a different perspective, once it gets to scale, can have a kind of transformative impact that you're describing uh, with respect to understanding the the current legal profession. So, I I wondered if you could reflect briefly on, on the different the different mechanisms of change, right? Getting new people in, new blood, new attitudes versus trying to change the, the current uh, program strategies and, and pedagogy. Oh,
1: absolutely. First of all, it's rather astounding, isn't it, that academics, who are people who are supposed to be interested in learning and cultivating their own minds, believe that they don't have to learn anything new in a 40-year career. That always stops me in my tracks. Every other employee in the world has to learn something new, right? I mean, We've all lived through a time when people had to learn how to use word processors instead of typewriters. Some professors managed to make that transition, others retired. But so one thing might be to just say back to the people, well, that's interesting that you don't know how to do that, but you can learn how to do that. And We all learn new things in our careers, and it's actually quite stimulating to the brain to learn new things. Now I don't know how far that will go. I would like to say that um, to colleagues. Sometimes I, I had to learn to be a clinical professor. I don't know if you know this about my career, but I was a completely pointy-headed doctrinal professor until about two thousand nine. Uh, been in law teaching for quite a lengthy period by then. Had you know two appellate clerkships, eighteen months in law practice, and that was it. And the associate dean came to me and said, "We would like you to co-teach our criminal defense clinic." And I literally said, you know, I'm somebody who thinks outside of the box, but that's a little, that's a stretch even for me because I've never, I did only 18 months of law practice and it wasn't criminal law. I don't even teach criminal law. So why in the world would you want me to do this? And of course the real reason was, well, nobody else is willing to do it, but they came up with some other reasons about me knowing evidence and professional responsibility and so forth. But I was co-teaching with somebody who was a very experienced clinical professor and defense lawyer. And I decided I wanted to learn, that I didn't want to just be teaching the seminar part of the school, of the course. So I first attended his trial practice class, which taught me skills, and I also learned something about him. And then I started, I told the students at the beginning of the semester that we were going to learn together from my co teacher, and I would model learning for them. And I learned to do a lot of things. And then I moved into another clinic, being a prosecutor, and now I. Don't handle all of the court work. Most of, much of it is done by my colleague, but I actually go to court and negotiate plea bargains and stand up in front of the judge and so forth. So people can learn these things, and I think it's exciting to learn them. The other part of my response is yes, I do see the faculty then hiring new blood to do these new things. Unfortunately, most of that is being done by hiring non tenure track people which I think is a mistake in a lot of ways. Um, one mistake is that I just don't think a caste system is appropriate in higher education. I think that if we believe in equality, we should act in equality. But the other reason is that we really are destroying our own, our own reason, sort of reason for being in higher education. The, the, the concept of American higher education is that research and teaching complement one another and that you can't have excellence in one without the other. And if that's true, then we're undermining that concept by separating them. I increasingly see faculties where there are tenure track tenured people who do less and less teaching and more and more research and are paid very highly for that. And non-tenure track people who are doing more and more of the teaching, not just the skills courses that we used to say were for non-tenure track people, but doctrinal courses as well. They're doing less research. Sometimes they're not given time for research and they're paid much less. This is a worrisome situation for a lot of reasons. Uh, One reason is that I think over the next 20 years, the tenure track faculty may become extinct because we're not really providing the services that the clients of our students need. The public and the boards of trustees are going to see that tenure is not really necessary in order to prepare people for law practice. So I I sit and I occasionally protest and wonder about what it is that we're doing to our basic concept in higher education.
2: Debbie, that's a, a good point for us to... Uh, start wrapping up. Um, although a little um, <laughs> dystopian, unfortunately, um, I have I have to say it's uh, um, your your vision of, of the current problems of of law schools and and the likely future of law schools and some of the challenges that uh, that they face. Uh, is particularly clear-eyed and, and fascinating. I, I think everyone's going to enjoy listening to, uh, to what we've talked about today. So uh, on, on behalf of uh, me and Mike and all of our listeners, thank you very much, Deborah Merritt from uh, Ohio State.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed the chance to talk with the two of you and reach out to your listeners.
2: Uh, I hope we have a chance to, to talk again. It, it's been really great. Thank you for listening to the Future Law Podcast. For links to the articles mentioned and to contact the hosts,
0: visit futurelawpodcast.com.